Brotherhood. Uh, to welcome back, um, by popular demand, I Archbishop Greek Daniel Griffith. Father Daniel, you'll remember, is a doctoral candidate at the University of Athens in liturgics or liturgical theology. He's the pastor now, uh, since his return from Greece at St. Michael the Archangel Church in Geneva, New York. Uh, prior to that, Father Daniel, by the way, is a senior priest of Archdiocese. He's uh, been ordained in the diocese 25 years. Uh, he served parishes in Albany, New York, and since Constantine and Helen in Dallas in our own region. Uh, was in Greece uh, seven years, eight, eight years, um, studying Greek and also preparing for his doctoral uh, dissertation. And since his return, as I said, he served the parish at St. Michael in Geneva. He's also the dean of the uh, deanery for upstate New York, and which includes western uh, New York, Toronto in that, and Mississauga? Yes, Toronto, Mississauga. Father Daniel will address this year, will address us on the theme, again at your request, of priesthood. Where did he get to anyway? Oh, there you are. <laughs> Thank you very much for your invitation. And uh, to all the brothers, thank you very, very much. I enjoyed myself last year. I only hope that I can follow it up well this year. <laughs> I chose the subject of priesthood. Um, and you can't hear me? Oh, all right. Uh, there will be changes in how this will be laid out. And I'll, I'll mention those to you right now. Uh, this evening's session is uh, temple, priests, Levites, and uh, sacrifices. I felt it best to get all of the Old Testamental material, since that will be very important in the whole discussion, out of the way so that you'll understand, so that as I'm going along, I won't have to explain what this is or that is. Uh, tomorrow morning's session uh, will be um, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The afternoon session will be uh, the royal priesthood and then the following day in the morning will be the body of Christ Soma Christu, and in the evening and the afternoon I'm sorry will be a much more uh, kind of uh, practical uh, recommendations and discussions in regard to the way we exercise or must exercise our own priesthood um, that very often we, we have been afflicted with a kind of Protestant disease, which is that we tend to treat uh, the temple, the priesthood of the Old Testament and the sacrifices in a rather disparaging way. And of course, this hasn't at all been helped by um, the uh, biblical critical schools who basically reduce it to a study of ancient Near Eastern anthropology and uh, find no spiritual value in it whatsoever. These are types and shadows, but types and shadows are not devoid of meaning. And if we are to understand the reality of which they are a type, we have to understand something about them as well. Now the temple was built by Solomon, and it replaced the tabernacle, which is in Greek, skini martyrias. Uh, the, te the tent of witness and this was a portable shrine and when uh, Solomon established it he established as high priest the priest Zadok and his line were the high priests thereafter in fact right up uh, until 
the year, let me see where I have that here, <clears throat> right up until the year 175 BC, the Zadokites were, high, were the high priestly tribe and family, dynasty I should say. Now, the first temple was destroyed in the year 586 by Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, when Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, defeated the Babylonians, he allowed the Jews to return. The return began in the year 538. These are all, of course, BC. And the rebuilding of the temple took place between 520 and 515. Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, was, was the Zadokite high priest who assumed office at that time. In 458 BC, Ezra came, the priest, and restored the law. There had been many irregularities that had gone on, and he presided over a reading of the Pentateuch of the uh, Torah. In 333 to 332, thank you very much, Father. Uh, Alexander the Great conquered the entire world, and uh, he was followed by the Ptolemy um, dynasty of Egypt, who took control of Palestine in 330 and held it until 398. In 398, it passed to the Seleucids of Syria. And you're probably familiar with the name Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who was the Seleucid ruler of Syria. The city of Antioch derives from his name. That's why it's called what it is. Although he founded a few others, so you have to be careful. You have Antioch on the Orantes, Antioch in Pisidia. So you've got to get the, where it's at. Um, <clears throat> it was he who tried to Hellenize the sanctuary who tried to introduce Greek customs, who tried to introduce the sacrifice of pigs, which were a common sacrificial victim in the Greco-Roman world. And uh, basically, to, uh, you could pray to, uh, in Hebrew to uh, the God of Israel, but you had to identify him with Zeus. So this proved to be unacceptable, not to all Jews, but to a faction. He deposed the legitimate, legitimate, last legitimate Zadokite high priest, Onius III, who was uh, then assassinated uh, four years later. That was in uh, 175 BC that this uh, deposition took place. However, there was, a there was a rebellion, and it was led by Mattathias Maccabees. He was of priestly lineage but he was not a Zadokite himself. And he, they led the revolt in 166. Uh, he, was, uh, he died shortly thereafter and was succeeded by his son, Judas Maccabeus. The rededication of the temple properly took place in 164. And this is uh, commemorated in the Jewish feast of Hanukkah. In 142 through 134, Simeon, or Simon Maccabeus, became high priest forever until a trustworthy prophet should arise. This was a decision which was made. The Zadokite line had ended. These uh, Maccabees had no right to, uh, they were intruders into the high priestly uh, position. And so this was a legitimizing of the situation 
by a general assembly of the people and of the priests. The, uh, this dynasty that they founded were known as the Hasmoneans. They also assumed kingly privilege. Very often the high priestly office had de facto, the high priest had exercised kingly privilege all along. But the Hasmoneans gradually began to lose their interest in the high priestly functions and to become, in many cases, especially the case of Alexander Yanias, very debauched kings. Uh, the line was ended by Herod the Great in 35 BC when he killed the last Hasmonean high priest, Aristobulus III. So then, uh, after that, the next significant event, after that, the high priesthood became a political ploy. Uh, he would pass it out, the Romans would pass it out to whomever. They were no longer Hasmoneans or Zadokites, it was just chaos that was going on. Uh, yes? Question, did, did uh, Herod kill uh, the last uh, priest? Yes. Uh, and he also killed his wife, Mariamne, who was of Hasmonean family, and the high priest was, in fact, her brother. So he feared, and he loved her very much, but he killed her. Of course, as you know, Herod's last wish as he was dying, rotting, literally rotting, was to get all of these people, giving a long list of uh, who should be gotten. So that was his kind of deathbed wish. So Herod was <laughs> a great builder and architect, one of the finest uh, architects and builders in antiquity, but a ruthless and brutal man. And uh, this uh, slaying, there were actually Antigonus uh, was also slain, who was a brother and a possible successor. So he wiped out the Hasmonean line completely. Now, in the year 66 AD, the Jewish revolt began. And it began not by political leaders. It began by priests taking a certain action in the temple. The temple, as we'll see, was the center of Jewish life. When the Romans conquered, they agreed to, that the Jews should not be forced to sacrifice to the genius of the emperor, provided that on a daily basis a sacrifice was offered in the temple in Jerusalem in behalf of the emperor. In the year 66 AD, a group of actually junior priests stopped the sacrifice, and that signaled the beginning of the revolt. The end result, it lasted, the f this first Jewish revolt lasted until 74 AD. However, in the year 70, the temple was destroyed and it was never again built. The temple, uh, I don't know, I, I hope most of you have some kind of idea what it was. It was a vast structure. And in fact, I believe it was only in 64 AD that it was finished. So just before it got destroyed, it was finished. <laughs> Not so much the, the inner part of the temple, kind of the temple proper, but the courts had been expanded and uh, beautified considerably, beginning with Herod the Great and then continuing thereafter. And they were only finished just a couple years before the whole thing blew up. So it was a vast area. It was in, on the site where is now located the Dome of the Rock, the Mosque of Omar. It was... Uh, a very large court, and there was a, 
access by Gentiles into that very large court up to a certain point. There was a parapet, a low wall, and on there was a sign. No foreigner is to enter within the forecourt and the balustrade around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. And there were guards standing ready with their weapons to kill anyone, and no Roman official would have intervened. No one could pass that barrier. Once past that barrier, then uh, Jew, faithful Jews who were ritually pure could go and they could purchase whatever animals they needed, whatever they had to do, and then enter the structure itself proper. The first court was reserved for women. Now they could go up into the, there was a balcony, so they could overlook, it overlooked the, the sacrificial area and they could observe what was going on. The, uh, there was an inner court which was directly in front of the temple structure itself, the holy place and the holy of holies. That was subdivided by, again, a low parapet. In the front part of it, Israelites and Levites could move. They could bring their sacrificial victims. There was the parapet, again, even if a Levite stepped over because a victim were falling, he would be killed. No one could go beyond that barrier. Within that priestly area were the Sea of Bronze. You've seen pictures of it, and if you've ever seen pictures of Mormon temples, they've all got one in there that they do their baptisms in, which is a large reservoir of water. A great deal of water was needed. There was a lot of blood and gore, and so a great deal of water was actually needed. And the altar of sacrifice itself, which was kept perpetually burned. Over the night, it was... Uh, the fires were banked, but it was never to go out. You could then, a priest alone, could enter into the holy place, which contained three items. Namely, it had the altar of incense, it had the menorah, the lamp, and it also had the table for shewbread, as it's often called in English versions, or artos its exact prothesis comes from that and we use that word for that particular service that we do because of the commemorative aspect of this in fact type of our liturgical practice today also the court the various storerooms and everything that were attached to the temple and there were many of them and within the walls of the temple those were called pastaforia which is again a word which we use in our own liturgical vocabulary, architectural vocabulary. There was then beyond that, separated by a beautifully in, uh, woven curtain, which depicted the signs of the zodiac, believe it or not. There was beyond that the Holy of Holies, the Agia Tonagion. And within that, only the high priests could go, and that only on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It had originally held the Ark of the Covenant, but somehow, and nobody knows when, and nobody knows how, it disappeared. So the, all that was there at that time, it was an empty chamber with just a um, kind of step, and it would be that which would be anointed. The Ark of the Covenant was gone. This then was the temple itself. Uh, now.
Well, it was because this was the common way people looked at the universe. It wasn't only because, it wasn't even primarily because of astrology. They weren't endowed with uh, uh, kind of mythological characteristics, although this is not unknown in other Jewish uh, monuments. Uh, there's a very famous uh, synagogue in the Galilee, uh, which is near Capernaum, actually. It's in the north. And uh, on its floor, it ha this is from the second century AD, it has the zodiac. And in the middle, it has the god Helios, the god of the sun. No, no, this was the depiction of the universe and everything. There were other ways in which the 12 tribes were represented, mainly on the high priest's robes. Now, this temple was unique in all the world because there were no other authorized temples. I'll tell you in a minute, there were a couple. But uh, especially after the deportation, there were no subsequent temples. This was the only one. So all prayer was directed toward this temple when they returned. And it was not just a house where people went to worship. It was in many ways the place where God lived. Now I quote now from Solomon's dedicatory prayer. This is in Second uh, 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 Chronicles 6, 18 through 21. Is it credible, then, that God should dwell with men on the earth? If heaven and the heavens of heavens do not contain thee, how much less this house which I have built? But to this end only it is made, that thou mayest regard the prayer of thy servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and mayest hear the prayers which thy servant poureth out before thee, that thou mayest open thine eyes upon this house day and night upon the place wherein thou hast promised that thy name should be called upon and that thou wouldst hear the prayer which thy servant prayeth in it hearken then to the prayer of thy servant and of thy people Israel whosoever shall pray in this place hear thou from thy dwelling place that is from heaven and show mercy it was not viewed as the pagans would often view the temple as literally God's house, but it was rather there was always the use of circumlocutions. It was the dwelling place of God's name. It was the dwelling place of his presence, the Shekinah. And especially the Holy of Holies was. Now, this was so much the case that according to the uh, historian, Jewish historian Josephus, who was himself a priest and actually was of Hasmonean descent. Uh, he said, in the good old days, in the past, the sardonics on the right shoulder of the high priest, they had, there were two of them, one on each shoulder, a very large gem, each one engraved with six of the names of the 12 tribes, and it held the breastplate. The sardonics on the right shoulder of the high priest's robe shown, and this is a quote, whenever God assisted at the sacred ceremonies. So this was not just another place of worship. It was the only place where sacrifice could be offered. It was not to be confused with the synagogue. Now you hear, um, especially Reformed and occasionally 
conservative Jews refer to their house of worship as a temple. You will never hear an Orthodox Jew do that. The temple was unique. And a synagogue is a place of assembly. We don't even know when the first synagogues began. The first witness is from uh, Egypt in the middle of the third century BC, where it's referred to as Prosefhi, a house of prayer. Uh, the records, however, dealing with synagogues in Palestine, contemporary with our Lord, mention nothing about prayer. They only mention the exposition of the scriptures. It probably began as fundamentally a communal organization uh, for, the, for the Jews in a local area. But it was never considered to be primarily a place of worship. And furthermore, it was never considered to be equal in any way with the temple. Yes. Shul is like school. school. Yeah. 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 Well, that's I think that's Yiddish probably. Well, well, it comes from German. Yeah. Yeah. It's one tradition within Jewish. What about the Elephantine? Well, I'll get into that in a minute. That's that's a kind of side issue in a sense. Um, just to show how significant, however, the temple was. Uh, there were, it was considered that there were three pillars upon which Judaism rested. And these pillars were the law, Torah, almsgiving, and avodah. Now, avodah was worship, it meant, but it meant specifically sacrificial worship. And when the temple was destroyed, there was a great debate among the rabbis. What can replace how can our sins be atoned without sacrifice? It was a major issue with Judaism. It had to regroup its whole forces and its whole understanding when the temple was taken away. And the question was raised, is, does prayer replace sacrifice? And the majority of the rabbis said, definitely not. Almsgiving can replace sacrifice, or more importantly, Torah study can replace sacrifice. And it was a long time before prayer was given a, a really respectable. People did it. It was done by the rabbis themselves, but before it was given and elevated to a position somewhat equivalent to the sacrificial worship of the temple. It was a long time before that. And to this day in the synagogue, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but it's all, the service is all interwoven with uh, temple imagery. There is, of course, always the prayer in, in Orthodox synagogues anyway. For the restoration of Jerusalem, for the restoration of the temple itself and the temple cult, the services are done in such a way that they approximate the times when the sacrifices were offered. The uh, tefillah, which means prayer, is... Um, done standing, which was the proper uh, posture for prayer in the temple itself. And uh, it's done in such a way, for instance, they do on Sabbath the mincha, which is a kind of, they'll do it twice, because sacrifice, two, uh, the sacrifices were doubled on the Sabbath, so they do it twice. They do an extra one. They kind of repeat them, and they kind of are like us in that regard. <laughs> um, also, what they do is they read from the Torah the passages that deal with the sacrifices that would have been offered. Another question that was raised, without sacrifice, what are we to do? How will the world be held together? 
Some answered by the saying of the Kedusha, which is the uh, holy, holy, holy from Isaiah, the Trisagion, that that would be done. And it is part of the synagogue service in both the uh, Amidah, and, uh, which is the standing prayer, on weekdays called the 18 benedictions and at other times the Sabbath on only seven. Uh, it's also part of uh, the Shema, which is Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one, uh, together with three rather long biblical passages. Uh, so it, it's interwoven with the synagogue service. They, many rabbis thought that that would keep the world going because there was no sacrifice. Others said, as long as we're reading and at least remembering the sacrifice, God will look kindly upon Israel. As I said, prayer was directed always toward the uh, temple, and even in biblical times, people said their private prayers to coincide with temple activities. Namely, they would pray at dawn, and especially at the ninth hour, because at dawn, the first sacrifice was offered. At the ninth hour, the uh, evening or afternoon sacrifice was offered so that by sunset, the doors could be closed. The fire banked on the altar, the doors closed. So these were times, and this is mentioned by, in, by Daniel, praying at the ninth hour, Judith praying at the ninth hour, and, and linking this prayer with the prayers in Jerusalem and the offering of sacrifice, and the apostle Peter praying at the ninth hour in Joppa. Uh, the temple was filthy rich, so much so that it was plundered on numerous occasions. Because it was not supported by tithes, it did not receive tithes at all, but it received rather a temple tax of a half shekel that every Jew everywhere in the world paid. There were special uh, treaties with Rome allowing the uh, collection to be taken to Jerusalem and escorted under guard because it was a, a substantial amount of money. Uh, the really nasty thing that uh, Trajan did after the fall of the temple was he insisted that the Jews continue paying that tax, but now to support the temple of Zeus, which was put on its place. So that was really rubbing their nose in it and resulted in a second revolt in 130. Uh, 132 through 135, the Bar Kochba revolt, which was again led by Bar Kochba, a priest. Now, uh, just as an aside, I will mention, you mentioned the, the uh, Elephantine, the temple. This was uh, a temple which represented the uh, unreformed Yahwism. In other words, it, it mixed worship of Asherah and so forth. Uh, it was called the temple of Yahweh. Yaho, it was built bef sometime before 525 BC and some disappeared after 332, after the Persian period, mainly because it served a um, military, um, a group of, of um, what do you call them when they, for money? Mercenaries, yeah. And when, <laughs> doesn't work. Uh, and when they were dispersed after the Persian Empire, then uh, the, the temple was destroyed. There was another temple, the temple that was built by Onias, a Zadokite, a son of that last Onias who was killed. He did so, sponsored by the uh, Egyptian rulers, the Ptolemies, 
It was built in the year 160 BC and outlasted the temple in Jerusalem, being destroyed in the year 73 AD. Uh, he did it and justified his actions on the basis of a passage which if you did Vespers last night or Vesperal Liturgy, you will, re you will remember hearing. In that day there shall be an altar of the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a monument of the Lord in the board at the border thereof. It was in one of our readings this on, for the Vespers. And this was the justification for this building. It never really, even the Jews of Egypt, by and large, did not seem to patronize it very much. It did have a legitimate Zadokite priesthood, high priesthood. Um, there is perhaps the connection with certain feasts celebrated there and the third book of Maccabees with the drunken elephant, but we're not entirely sure about that. There's a story that the ark was taken to Elephantine, and that's how it found its way down to Ethiopia. Yeah, I heard. I've seen the thing on TV, too. But uh, that seems rather incredible. In the first place, the ark was never associated with sacrifice. It was way, way, way away. They didn't do sacrifices in front of the ark. They did them in front of the temple. But there were no blood sacrifices right at the ark itself. Um, nobody actually knows what that is like in the church of uh, Zion. Uh, in uh, Aksum. Nobody's seen it except one priest. So I, I have no idea. Oh, yes. Well, there's a, the whole, a very fine article that I had read um, in, a, in uh, Le Museum, which is a very respectable journal that uh, shows that Ethiopian Christianity, its roots aren't quite as clear as people think. And, and before they really come to embrace Orthodox, in this case Monophysite uh, Christianity as it was espoused by the Coptic Church with a really united voice was only in the 12th century led by Tekel Hayamount and at that time there was great objection on the part of a great many Ethiopians because of his introduction of a new doctrine known as the Holy Trinity. So it created a great many problems. So what was going on there is a very confused situation. My, my inclination is that they were, if anything, Sibelians. And uh, exactly how deeply it penetrated is not sure. Uh, I know they point out the existence of the Falashas, all of whom now live in Israel. Oh, yeah, yeah, it is. Well, there was, in the first place, there was a lot of, of I remember at that time, southern Yemen was Jewish, or largely so. And it, it seems to have been missionized, if you will, from there. So it was a very confused story, and we don't really have very, really clear evidence of what was going on until Tekel Hayamaut in the, in the 12th century. So it's, I don't know, I won't. However, there is another temple floating around out there, which is significant, and I'll tell you why. And that is the temple on Mount Gerizim, which was built by the Samaritans. The Samaritans, uh, I mean, the, the common myth is that they were, uh, in fact, um, non-Jews that had been brought in after the, the uh, original population of Israel, the northern kingdom, had been deported, and these were either mixed or basically non-Jews who had been brought in and who had adopted the uh, worship of the God of Israel. Uh, but this isn't the story the Samaritans tell of themselves, and modern historians are now beginning to believe that what happened was 
that uh, the Jews, when they came back from the deportation to Babylon, were very upset, did not accept those Jews who were not deported, and that the Samaritans really come from them. There was even a time when there was intermarriage between the high priestly families. And um, the temple on Mount Gerizim was an exact copy of the temple in Jerusalem, but on a somewhat smaller scale. It was built in 332 BC and remained until sometime in the first century AD. Now the reason I said it's significant is because there has been discussion of the reestablishment of the temple in Jerusalem. And not only discussion, it's been prayed for for the last 2,000 years. And there, is, uh, there are, in fact, two seminaries where priests are being trained. Believe it or not, there are still priests. Not rabbis, but real priests within Judaism. And they have a certain role to play. But they're being trained to perform the sacrifices in view of the reestablishment. But there are two blocks to the reestablishment. The first is that nobody was quite sure until just a couple years ago how that land was laid out. Because obviously the, the rock was a significant feature. But if you took it to be the altar of sacrifice with all those drains and holes, it looks like it would be. We know that there were drains underneath the altar of sacrifice. Uh, you have the temple hanging off in midair on one side. <laughs> if you take it to be the Holy of Holies, it's hanging, dangling on the other side. So um, what has happened was very recently they've unearthed the, the Samaritan temple, its floor plan. And on the basis of that, they now know exactly how that was laid out and how the temple fit on that land. So that removes one problem. Huh? Uh, I, think it was the, I think it was the altar of sacrifice. But they also know how it was laid out and everything. If, if any of you have been to Jerusalem, you know that there is a sign there placed by the rabbinate forbidding Jews to go up on the Temple Mount. Part of it was because of fear that they would step upon the Holy of Holies and therefore commit blasphemy. But the other part was, and this is the real rub, um, because in order to enter the Temple grounds, you had to be ritually pure which meant that you had to be sexually abstinent since sunset the night before, uh, and you had to immerse in a mikvah. All of that could be handled. But there was one major problem, and that is corpse impurity. God is the God of the living, and in any contact with the dead and with a corpse is absolutely forbidden. In all, the only way that that can be removed is by the ashes of the red heifer, which are illustral water being sprinkled. It's a seven-day period, and being sprinkled on the third and seventh day would be required of priests, uh, ordinary Israelites, anyone to enter the temple area and to approach the holy. Uh, you probably heard a melody and uh, the idea that they now have found, they, they claim perhaps to have found a red heifer to sacrifice somewhere. <laughs> you guys down here did it. <laughs> um, and, uh, be, but it's by rabbinic, it's very evidently, they're a rare critter, and by rabbinic tradition and law, there cannot be any, there cannot be even two white hairs or non-red hairs on the animal. So you have to really go over it with a fine-tooth comb. Furthermore, 
The one, the priest who sacrifice has to be done by a priest. The priest who sacrifices the red heifer has to himself be free from corpse impurity. So he cannot have had any, if anyone in his family died, he cannot have had any contact with that person. He cannot even go and a funeral cortege pass by. So getting away from corpse impurity isn't a very easy thing to do. So it ha would have to be someone who was sequestered from childhood. Isn't that also that influences the floor plans of the seminaries in that they're built on raised platforms so that you're not actually walking on the earth where the dead are placed. Uh -huh. So the boys are live in a sequestered community from childhood above the ground so that they're completely ritually pure uh -huh. in order to be able to ascend the mountain. Yeah, so this, this is not an easy thing. This is, the, this is the stumbling block, but I brought it out. We're talking about the temple, and we're talking specifically the temple, the Samaritan temple does provide a key to understand things. Yes, Would you third, say that a third stumbling block is the door of the rock? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes. I mean, there's, I'm speaking of things within Judaism now itself. I mean, I do think there might be, I, I honestly don't think that the, the Muslims are going to say, okay, you know, take it. You know, that's all right. We're brothers. I suspect you're right there, Sin. <laughs> that's practical reasons. And there are other Jews that really do pray and believe that it will descend from heaven and will not be a man's manufacturer. And in fact, quite a few of the Hasidic Jews take that view. And there are quite a number of other Jews who would be rather displeased that their central sanctuary, their, the focus of all their prayer and devotion, resembled a slaughterhouse. I suspect they would not be overjoyed about that, though they may not admit it. Okay, uh, are there any questions now regarding the temple itself? Yes. I've read some place where there was a theory uh, of a, a variant reading in the Septuagint that suggests that the tabernacle may have been stored within the, um, within the temple itself. In other words, when the temple was built, what Solomon's temple, uh -huh. when it was built, what was left of the tabernacle was either put in like would be the floorboards in between or whatever. Uh, they had those pastaforia. They had plenty of storage rooms and everything that, all that around the side. That was incorporated some way or another into the... Have you, in your studies, have you... No, I haven't. However, it doesn't surprise me because um, there was a situation, the fire of the, whole, of, the, uh, of the altar of sacrifice was defiled at one point, and so they buried it until a prophet should arise, and this is the Samaritan's idea of their, their prophet, a prophet like Moses, whom they treat as a Christ figure in a sense, who would arise, who would tell them what to do with it because they weren't sure exactly how to treat this defiled fire, so they buried it, and it's waiting there for the time. So it doesn't amaze me. They wouldn't throw things out. Uh, if you've heard of the word geniza, if you've accessed um, Father Ephraim Lash's page, his uh, web page, he has the Geniza, which is the, the used, the older documents, so you can get them that way. Uh, what happened was uh, a Torah scroll, or even a Haftorah, which would be like the prophet scrolls, could not be destroyed. So they had these storerooms where they would literally store them. And uh, of course, one in Egypt, where things are particularly dry, turned out to be extremely important 
uh, because a great, great many documents were found there, including the Damascus document, which set the whole thing in motion about figuring out who the Essenes are, which we're not going to get into right now, <laughs> uh, in spite of Danielou, who sees one under every bed. Jean Danielou. Um, anyway, the, now I would like to talk about the pre... Any, uh, yes, Father. Uh, the uh, book of Revelation, uh, some would say, says that the, the temple will be rebuilt, and that at that point it is the beginning of the last days. And so the, the, the things you talked about in terms of coming into place, perhaps for the first time, uh, raised that possibility. It's not the first time that it was attempted. It was attempted under Julian the Apostate as well and the work was destroyed by lightning. So it was attempted, and there was a period when the Emperor Martian was killed, and uh, the Persians invaded, and they set up a puppet state for a period of three years in the sixth, uh, seventh century. They set up a puppet state for three years, where, in fact, one of our patriarchs was, was uh, martyred uh, by the Jewish leadership at that time. Uh, there was, I think, some attempt there, but it never really gelled. But this one under Julian the Apostate is a very well-known and documented incident. Um, but you're right, this is the, it has to be, because the sign is the coming when Antichrist will set himself up in the temple. So the reestablishment of the temple is a prerequisite for the final days. You're right about that. Anyway. The next is uh, the subject, unless there's anything further on the temple and its significance. You have to realize how central it was, how important it was, its cultus and everything was not, it was entirely unique. Yes? How large was it? Oh, I don't have the dimensions. It was, it was big. <laughs> it was larger than the present area, which is the Dome of the Rock. Much larger, because that was a large, it was an artificial, it, it, because it was considerably expanded, so it was artificial, there was fill there. And some of that has come off. That has it. Also, I would mention, just as an aside, the Wailing Wall. Do you know what that was? Or is, I should say? Huh? No, actually it's not. No, what it was is, is debris that was thrown down. during the. So some of it may have, in fact, parts from the temple itself, but a lot of it is also from the Fortress Antonio. And... Uh, so, but why it is called the Wailing Wall was because Justinian expelled uh, the majority of the Jews. His was the last great expulsion. And when uh, he did, he, or shortly before that, he allowed them on the 9th of Av, which is their fast in commemoration of the destruction of the temple, to approach that far and weep for the destruction of the temple one day a year. So ever since it's been known as the weeping wall because of that. In rabbinic tradition, it's said that the, the Shekinah of God comes and has left the world, but comes and kisses the uh, wailing wall. So by contact with it, you can stuff little requests in the chinks and everything, and people pray there. right near there too because that's been dedicated now uh, discussing the priesthood itself uh, the priests at the time of our Lord in the first century AD it's estimated 
that there were 20,000 priests and Levites in Palestine. There were some outside, but there were 20,000 priests and Levites in Palestine. Just to give you a kind of comparison, at that same time, by Josephus' count, the Pharisees numbered no more than 6,000. That's card-carrying Pharisees. Also, you had, well, there were a lot who were influenced by him, but, and, and the, uh, on the other hand, the Essenes were uh, counted as being 4,000. So the priests, all in all, and the priests are not to be confused with Sadducees because only the, uh, the very wealthy uh, priests who immediately lived and controlled the temple, only they were generally involved, as, as well as the old Jewish aristocracy was also Sadducean. But the majority of the priests were at least sympathetic to the Pharisees. In fact, Josephus, who, as I said, was a priest and of Hasmonean descent, was himself uh, a Pharisee, identified himself as a Pharisee. But you have a rather large number of priests. It was a hereditary uh, office. It was not one that you chose. And these were the sons of Aaron. Now, what were the priestly duties? The priests, just one moment here. I'm sorry, the priestly qualifications first is perhaps best. The priest must be unblemished. He can neither be blind nor lame, nor have a trembling hand or foot, nor have a misshapen nose. I'm not sure what that means with a bunch of Semites. Nor, uh, nor be wall-eyed, nor have skin marred by continual scab, dry patches, or rupture. He is, however, entitled to take, partake of the sacrificial food. He is a priest by nature, uh, by his descent, and he may, if he is ritually pure, of course, if he has skin ruptures, he's certainly not ritually pure, but in other things, if he's blind and so forth, he can eat the sacrificial food, but he cannot enter into the priestly enclosure or in any way partic participate in the sacrifices. There can be no piercings of any kind. Uh, he must be unshaven and unshorn. Now, in spite of what we see in movies, the Jews of Palestine did not run around in bathrobes. They, in fact, wore, and we do have, we do have frescoes and everything that depict them, and they wore clothing which wasn't very different than uh, the Greco-Roman population which they lived. They had certain hatching marks and so forth that were distinctive on their, on their uh, but the men wore tunics about knee length, a little below the knee perhaps, uh, the women wore uh, a robe very similar, clothing very similar to what would be worn by uh, Greek women, and a head covering, but the face was not covered in any way. Um, they generally, the men had their hair cut short. They didn't have long beards and, uh, you know, run around in bedsheets. So, um, this is, so the priests were distinctive. You could tell who a priest was by the way he dressed and the way he appeared and, and was groomed. Uh, his wife must be a virgin. Does this not sound familiar? May not marry, he may not marry a woman who had committed fornication or a widow or a divorcee. Those are specifically mentioned as forbidden relationships. Um, all the members of his household must be chaste. If his daughter committed fornication, she must be burned. 
Uh, there are only a few things that uh, the normal method was stoning. This required uh, burning, and if uh, a man had had relations with a mother and her daughter, that also required burning, but there are only a few instances. Obviously, if the son, who was a priest, had committed adultery, he would have to be stoned to death. Anyone who had committed adultery, that was, that was it. Uh, he was forbidden to defile himself by contact with any of the dead, save close family members. In other words, he could only defile himself, only have contact with the dead, only go to a funeral, if you will, only prepare the body of his father, mother, sons, daughters, brothers, or virgin sister. In other words, who doesn't have a husband herself. Only those could he defile himself for by having contact at any time. And also, you would defile yourself if you came upon an animal that had died of its, on its own, roadkill. You, <laughs> you were defiled. <laughs> Not an animal killed in sacrifice, obviously, or <laughs> that would make no sense. But um, as I said, an animal that had died on its own, that would, be, um, uh, that would defile you. He, like any other uh, Jew who wanted, to enter, who wanted to enter the holy place, would have to be sexually abstinent, as I said, from the, uh, the uh, night before, from sunset the night before, and would have to have immersed in the mikveh. The mikveh is, a, is a, a certain type of bath. It was basically undrained, and this water, which must have been pretty stagnant, <laughs> they would have to go down into that, immerse themselves, and then come back up. Mikvoth. Hmm? Back up a second. What was the radiation range on the corpses? Oh, I, I, you want to, I'll bring in the Mishnah next, <laughs> give you the Mishnah. Wait, it goes into touching or just being in, how close? They even talk about the corpse overshadowing you. So even, you know, if the corpse happens to go by. Or there was, uh, what was it, Tiberius. The city of Tiberius was permanently off limits because it was built over a cemetery. And so you, anyone from Tiberius was impure. No priest could reside in that city because of that. So it was, uh, I don't know the exact radius, but it covered quite, a, quite an area. Um, now, the high priest had additional restrictions. Uh, he was called Oerefs Omegas, in the, or the, the great priest in, in earlier documents, uh, but from... First Maccabees on, his normal title is Archierefs, or what we call high priest or archpriest. That's why I become particularly annoyed when in our archdiocese we give titles such as archpriest. Proto-presbyter is fine, but archpriest is the bishop's title. That's how he's known most of the time, actually more than being addressed as a bishop. It's archpriest, high priest, archierefs. Um, this title, however, was not a natively Jewish title. It was taken from the pagan term for the chief priest who was appointed by the king. He was an appointee of the king. In, uh, his, his election had to be confirmed, or he was appointed by the Persian rulers, subsequently by the Seleucid rulers, uh, by the Ptolemies, and then the Seleucids, and then the Romans. So he had to always be appointed, and therefore the term archierefs. Uh, he had to abide by all of the restrictions that were given for the priests. In addition, his children may not marry with any non-priestly lineage. 
In addition, he was forbidden to defile himself with contact with any of the dead, including close family members, father, mother, sons, daughters, brothers, and virgin sister. In other words, uh, if his father died, he could not have any contact, could not help prepare the body, which was done normal practice among Jews. He could not be there for mourning or anything. Go through the ritual mourning. When Jews mourn, it's a ritual that they go through. And, um, of course, inwardly he would feel sadness, but he couldn't act it out. Now, he was distinguished by the, from the other priests, and this is very significant, because he was anointed with the miron. The miron is called to elion charisma, or to agion miron. Miron means perfume. And it wasn't just ordinary oil. The recipe is given in Exodus 30, 22 through 32, um, and it was confected and made by the priests themselves. It was a combination of olive oil, very fine olive oil, mixed together with a number of spices. And hence, our miron today is modeled on that. And the last recipe I saw had 55 in it. But, um, and it's a little more complicated now, of course. But the roots of it lie in this agion miron, which could only be used for the anointing of the high priest and the king. For anyone else to touch it or use it was death. So he was, very, he was an anointed high priest. As a little aside, it doesn't appear that during the Herodian period that any of them were anointed because they, they were changing. <laughs> Who knew whether you woke up the next day you were going to be a high priest? Um, he wore special vestments that were very, very distinct and set him off from all others. And he wore the most distinctive thing was on his mitre, which was like a turban, he wore a golden flower which had on its petals written, Holy to the Lord. And this was in many ways the ultimate symbol of his office. He also wore a tunic which was woven without seams and which was very unique, uh, deep blue and beautifully done and embroid richly embroidered, but note that without seam. Um, now, he participated, as did other priests, in their activities. The, all priests were involved in offering sacrifice. That was their primary function. And by that, I mean mainly uh, offering blood sacrifices, tetrapo uh, tetrapods. They also, however, and he, had a number of other activities they had to prepare and to present the artitis processios, those, those shoe bread, had to be changed weekly. They had to prepare that. They had to take care of the sacred vessels. They had to tend the fire of the altar of sacrifice and the altar of incense that they not be extinguished. They had to perform various menial tasks within the priestly enclosure because no one could enter there. So though a Levite could bring the, the firewood to the enclosure wall, it was the priest who had to haul it over and fix it up and take care of it and uh, cut it up and use it as was needed. They had to take the ashes out. They had to wash down the place with the, uh, with the water from the Sea of Bronze. Uh, they had also to uh, determine proper sacrifices to be offered because when you came forward to offer, if it were a personal sacrifice, you had to um, tell what you were offering this for. 
and they had to determine whether it was proper. They also had to make certain other decisions. For instance, if you had defrauded someone of money, before you could offer your sacrifice, you had to restore in full the amount you had, defra you had defrauded, and you had to give a fifth over that. So before your sacrifice could be accepted, that had to be done. He had to ascertain also whether, uh, say, a woman had approached and was making an offering. She wouldn't go up to the parapet. Someone else would carry it. But whether she was a prostitute or not or defiled, in which case he had to reject her sacrifice. Uh, he had to supervise the seven-day purification process for corpse impurity. Uh, this didn't have to be done at the temple. Your local resident priests could have taken care of you because they did not all live at the temple. They were divided into 24 courses, and each one would come and serve for a period of a week, twice a year. So they're serving and on duty for uh, two weeks during the year, though not consecutive. And they were also all invited to come and to participate in the uh, major pilgrimage feasts. By that, I mean Passover, uh, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths, especially on Passover when uh, they had to use all the courts to sacrifice the lambs. They had to all be sacrificed, several hundred of them had to be sacrificed within a period of two hours. So a great many priests were needed on duty at that time. So they, in their village, they could have, say, some of this water, and you could be purified there. Uh, they also had to certify freedom from leprosy. They had to certify the completion of a Nazarite vow. They had to administer the water of bitterness to a woman accused of adultery to determine her guilt or innocence. Uh, they accepted the shekel for the firstborn, and this is one of the few things that the priests still do. Uh, if you are a priestly lineage, and most people with the name Cohen, or Kohen, which is the, the name, uh, word for priest, much like Kuri is, they, uh, you would go to your local priest, and they still do this, if for your firstborn son, you give him money. You redeem from him. He belongs to God. He's sacred to God. And therefore, you give him. Um, no, I was just told by an older woman here in the cathedral parish that they did that for their firstborn sons here. They would give the priest a silver dollar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They were doing it here too. Doctor Savings, her firstborn, and when she went for the forty days, she gave the priest a silver dollar. Oh, really? Wow. Well, this was uh, is by law with the Jews. The other thing that the, they do is priests are called first to the reading of the Torah. Uh, three verses for the Kohen, three verses for a Levi, and then three ver four verses for an Israelite. They, they now stand there because most of them are not competent enough to read the Hebrew well, but they stand there generally as, in a position of honor. The other thing they still do is they do the solemn Aaronic blessing on the major on the pilgrimage feasts, in which case they're very much covered with the talits and no one can look at them. In the temple, you had to be prostrate in the ground, but since you can't repeat in the synagogue what was done in the temple, they all lay on their side on the pew, in the pews like this. <laughs> because to prostrate would be imitating the temple. Uh, these are the only things that priests still do. Uh, they accepted tithes. You didn't give your tithes to the temple. You gave 10% of your agricultural goods only to the local priest, and they were collected. Uh, this is how he lived, because priests and Levites were forbidden to own land. 
So they had to live one, some way. So basically, because they had no portion in land, they belonged to God, they had no portion in land in Israel, they received from the people their tithes. There were actually uh, several tithes. It wasn't just 10%. It actually ended up to be at least 20% because there were several. There were poor tithes certain years. It was a very complicated system. Um, they also received the first fruits. You had flocks. Your, uh, so the first lamb of the year goes to the priest. If you're slaughtering an animal away from the temple, because the temple, you couldn't take your animal there always, the priest received his portion. Um, and that was a holy thing to do. Uh, so much so that one of the priests who was still around after the destruction of the temple was talking with one of the rabbis and said, well, I'm going to go to sacrifice. And he said, what do you mean? And he said, to eat. Um, they prepared the miron and they prepared incense. And the incense had to be proper. If you remember the, son, the sons of um, Aaron were struck dead for offering strange incense in the temple. So there was a, there's also a recipe for the, con, for the confection of the incense as well, and they were responsible for this. They prepared the artitus prothesios, the shoe bread. They prepared unleavened cakes and wafers for the involvement in the sacrifice. Um, they filled or discharged various administrative responsibilities involved with the temple, which could be very, very extensive. Uh, they also were, they read the law, the Torah, and they were considered and considered themselves to be the authoritative interpreters of the law. Even at the time of our Lord, the, rab the uh, rabbis-to-be, the sages were only uh, coming into their own. Basically, it was the priests who read the, determined the law. Uh, and they acted often as civil magistrates as well. Now, the high priest did all of these things, but he in particular offered sacrifice and entered into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. He also offered uh, the sacrifices on the Sabbaths and on pilgrimage feasts, and he blessed the people using the Tetragrammaton, which was only used in the temple, the four uh, consonantal name for God. And he prophesied. And I quote from St. John's Gospel. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on thus, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should then that the whole nation should perish. He did, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they took counsel how to put him to the death. So here we have uh, the scriptures witnessing that he was one who uh, prophesied. Now, the Levitical duties, I'll just mention in passing, they, didn't, they were basically the disenfranchised priests of the high places. And they were divided also into 24 courses. 
they received a portion from the priest's tithe, and they generally weren't too happy with what they got. Uh, they formed a Levitical choir, which sang the psalms. They played instruments, trumpets, cymbals, etc., the shofar, during certain times during the services. They opened and closed the gates. These were huge, huge gates that extremely heavy, required quite a bit of manpower to open and close. They often served as guards at the entrances. Uh, they brought the, need, the wood needed for, alt, for the altar uh, to the entrance of the priestly enclosure. They often carried women's sacrifices. The woman could come only so far, so she would give her sacrifice, it would be taken to the deacon. He would have to inquire as to whether it was proper from her. Um, and they assisted in the sacrifice if the person was not able to do it. Um, and they too often uh, fulfilled administrative roles in the temple complex. By, do, by that I mean um, most men at that time and, and a great many women were quite capable and did kill animals to eat. I mean you didn't have uh, we have Wegmans up there, you have I'm sure whatever, I don't know what's your big grocery chain down here. Yeah, well, you know, everybody's got one. They didn't have those. So basically uh, they had to uh, know how to do it. So any adult man or nearly any adult man would know exactly how to slaughter the animal. It was not slaughtered by the priest. It was, the blood was caught by the priest, but it was slaughtered by the, uh, by the person offering, if it's an individual sacrifice, that is, or by the Levite, if he couldn't do it. And also, it's a big animal. He might have to hold it up. Now, <clears throat> basically, the priest's job when it comes down to it, was uh, a combination of liturgical worship and, or semi-liturgical worship, and expert butchery. Normally a sacrifice when brought had to be, it took 10 minutes to flay this animal. It had to be done in a certain way to drain the blood, to use the blood in its proper way. The animal would be hung up, flayed completely, and it could not, the bones could not be broken. So it would have to, and no, and he would have to then put it on the altar, whatever. Now, if you have the hindquarters of an ox that you've got to put up in that on that altar, and you're wearing nice, bright, white linen, <laughs> which you cannot stain, and the temple was pervaded by silence, all the commentators state it was absolutely silent, except for the priest's prayers as the sacrifice was burning up, and except for the singing by the choir uh, as the sacrifice of incense and also the oblation, uh, the libation of wine was made. So uh, the, it was absolutely silent, so you couldn't be grunting and groaning as you're taking this huge haunch of, and lopping it up. And they always say that it fell in exactly the right place. They knew exactly where it had to fall in on this grate. So uh, you had to be a pretty hefty fellow in order to do that. I'm not sure that most of us would be <laughs> in shape for that sort of thing. To show you uh, the, the high priest and how, what he meant to the people of his time, although this is about 200 years earlier. I'm going to read a passage. This is taken from uh, the wisdom of Jesus Sirach, which is uh, from our Old Testament. In the uh, Catholic versions and some Protestant versions, it's known as Ecclesiasticus. It was uh, written originally in Hebrew, and re more recently the Hebrew original has been found and translated into Greek after. 
This was done at a period before the revolt of the Maccabees. It's in chapter 50. The leader of his brethren and the pride of his people was Simon, the high priest, son of Onias, who in his life repaired the house and in his time fortified the temple. How glorious he was when people gathered round him as he came out of the inner sanctuary, like the morning star among the clouds, like the moon when it is full, like the sun shining upon the temple of the Most High, and like the rainbow gleaming in glorious clouds, like roses in the days of the first fruits, like lilies by the spring of water, like a green shoot on Lebanon on, the, on a summer day, like fire and incense in the censer, like a vessel of hammered gold, adorned with all kinds of precious stones, like an olive tree putting forth its fruit, and like a cypress towering in the clouds. When he put on his glorious robe and clothed himself with superb perfection, and went into the holy altar, he made the court of the sanctuary glorious. And when he received the portions from the hands of the priests, as he stood by the hearth of the altar with a garland of brethren around him, he was like a young cedar on Lebanon, and, he surrounded, and they surrounded him like the trunks of palm trees. All the sons of Aaron in their splendor, with the Lord's offering in their hands before the, holy, before the whole congregation of Israel, finishing the service at the altar and arranging the offering to the Most High, the Almighty, he reached out his hand to the cup and poured a libation of the blood of the grape. He poured it out at the foot of the altar, of the, of the altar a pleasing odor to the Most High, the King of all. Then the sons of Aaron shouted. They sounded the trumpets of hammered work. They made a great noise to be heard for remembrance before the Most High. Then all the people together made haste and fell to the ground upon their faces to worship their Lord, the Almighty, God Most High. And the singers, and the singers praised him with their voices in sweet and full-tone melody. And the people besought the Lord Most High in prayer before him who is merciful, till the order of worship of the Lord was ended, so they completed his service. Then Simon came down and lifted up his hands over the whole congregation of the sons of Israel to pronounce the blessing of the Lord with his lips and to glory in his name. And they bowed down in worship a second time to receive the blessing from the Most High. And now bless the Lord of all, who in every way does great things, who exalts our days from birth and deals with us according to his mercy. May he give us gladness of heart and grant that peace may be in our days in Israel as in the days of old. May he entrust to us his mercy and let him deliver us in our days. This is a vision of how Jews of that time saw the high priest. Okay, I see I'm getting prompted. Now I would just treat uh, rather... The, the sacrifices that were offered. And at the end of that, I'll read a passage describing hypothetically what you would go through if you came to offer. The sacrifices basically are of three kinds. First place, we have to understand that all sacrifice, all that we have, everything, belongs to God. Sacrifices were not understood crassly as feeding God. Rather, they were understood as returning to God a small portion, a portion which he himself had designated, so that in, thanks, in thanksgiving, so that we can partake of the balance. 
the sacrifices also had, especially in the case of those on the Day of Atonement and of individual ones, atoning or substitutionary uh, value for the sins and transgressions. And this is most important. There were two stages in sacrifice. The first stage involved the slaughter of the animal. The slaughter of the animal was not the sacrifice itself. It was a necessary preliminary. And as I said, it could be done by the sacrificer, by the person offering the sacrifice, or it could be, be done by a Levite in emergency. It was not done by the priest. What was the second stage and the most crucial one was what was done with the blood of the sacrifice. Okay, these are the, that element has to be always kept in mind. Do not confuse sacrifice with killing the animal. Now, there were three basic types of sacrifice. One was the whole burnt offering, in which the entire animal was burned. The blood was drained, flayed, eviscerated. The bo none of the bones were broken and it was laid upon the altar and burnt and consumed entirely. This is Olokaftoma, whole burnt offering. These were fundamentally the daily morning and evening sacrifices that had to be offered. And these were doubled on the days of Sabbaths and feast days, and on the day of Yom Kippur there were quite a number of animals that had to be slaughtered. But these were whole burnt offerings. These are communal offerings, these are not of individuals. Incidentally, the prayers which the priests offered would be for the welfare of the people of Israel, not for individual needs. Then there were uh, sacrifices for sins or sacrifices for transgressions. And this is something where the typology reflects upon our own liturgical practice, and I'll talk more about that. But uh, the Ipertis Amartias were those, or for sins, were those which were deliberately and consciously committed. They were done with premeditation. You knew what you were doing. You knew you were breaking the law of God. Now, this was a, a lamb. This was generally a ram that had to be offered. Now, there were also iper ton primelimaton, or those which were for transgressions. These were those which had been committed violations of the law of God, which had been committed involuntarily, through ignorance, or spontaneously, without premeditation. These were known in Greek as agnoisias. Hence, the high priest and the priest offers sacrifices for his sins and the ignorances of the people for these transgressions, involuntary sins. It's a very specific term. In this case, the fat was burned uh, and the blood was taken, but the priest was the one who ate the victim. There were even cooking pots and places where they would prepare. They, they basically boiled the meat. We have signomin keafasintonomartion ketum plimelimatonimon paratu kiriu at deithomen which is a pardon and remission of our sins and transgressions. Let us ask of the Lord. It refers to these two types of sacrifice. Remember, these were personal sins that had been committed, not communal ones. However, if you had committed a sin unto death, 
such as murder, deliberate murder, such as incest, such as idolatry, such as blasphemy, such as uh, male homosexual um, copulation, anal copulation, uh, bestiality, um, or magic, involvement in magic, especially that which dealt with seances and so forth, the consulting of the dead. There was no forgiveness. There was only the death penalty, and you had to die because you defiled Israel. And you endangered the whole people. You had to die, and if someone knew that the sin you had committed and kept it secret, he was subject to death, too. Hmm? Yeah, there is, there is that. The parent could bring uh, the death sentence against his own child. Uh, he couldn't carry it out, but he could bring it before the, those to decide. These are sins unto death. They are not remissible or atonable through sacrifice. And we'll get and we'll talk about how this influences our own idea of sacrifice and the Eucharist specifically. Um, incidentally, the Mishnah has a little part where it deals with those who can make their own death an atoning death but is, such is not dealt with in the scriptures themselves. The third type of sacrifice is sometimes referred to as shared or communion sacrifice because people get part of it to eat. In Greek, this is thesia sotirio, which is sacrifice of welfare, and it's of two kinds. One is a sacrifice hypertisenesios, which is for thanksgiving, and the other one is to fulfill a vow, iper efkis. Now, in both of those types of sacrifice, the only difference was the, uh, that they were, the amount of time that you were allowed to eat it after. But the priest got a portion, a portion with the fat and, and the blood was burned. The priest received a portion, and the offerer also received the balance, the, the lion's share of the animal to take home and uh, to consume ritually pure. He, this was not eaten within the temple complex, but whoever did it, again, had to be sexually abstinent, not only he, but all who participated and ate from it. And one of these, Iperanesios, for Thanksgiving, was the Paschal sacrifice. It was of that type. And uh, so anyone eating the Pascha had to be ritually pure as well. Okay, that basically summarizes uh, the only last thing I want to do. I know I've taken much of your time. Sorry about that. Is uh, to read this passage to you. This is a family coming to the temple. And it's a typical example of how this worked out. Again, keep in mind the majesty that's already been described of the temple's worship. But this is how it worked out if you were a Hebrew at that time or a Jew at that time. First of all, they had money set aside, the second tithe money. The value, 10% of the year's crops, had to be spent in Jerusalem. It wasn't given to the priests. It wasn't given to the temple. It had to be spent there, so people liked that tithe. And a pilgrimage festival was the obvious occasion. Let us say that during the year, the wife had had a child, her uncle had died, and the husband had dishonestly appropriated a deposit that a neighbor had left with him to secure the loan of an animal. Some things had to be done in advance. You couldn't just walk up to the temple. The removal of corpse impurity required seven days. <clears throat> to make matters easy, 
Let us make several suppositions. A priest had come to their village with a mixture of ashes and water and had removed corpse impurity before the pilgrimage. If they didn't, it had to be done in Jerusalem itself. Two, the man had already repaid his neighbor and added a fifth of the value of what he had taken. And three, the child had been born three months before the pilgrimage, for the woman was not a menstruant. They immersed in one of the public pools before, before nightfall and abstained from sex that night. The next morning they went to the temple. Nearby they bought a ram uh, for a, the man's guilt offering and a lamb for a thank offering. They entered the temple by the eastern gate in the southern wall, assuring the gatekeeper that they were, keeping, they were bringing in only sacrificial animals and emerged into the court of the Gentiles. They turned around and walked back to the royal portico. There they found baskets, which contained, each containing two inspected birds, and they bought one basket for, for the woman's offering after childbirth. They crossed the court of the Gentiles and came to the balustrade that warned Gentiles to go no further. Here they assured one of the Levites on duty that they were pure. At some point, probably close to the barrier, they presented their ram and lamb for inspection. At the inner wall, they separated the, wo they separated the woman going off to the right or left to enter the woman's court, the man walking straight through to the first eastern gate, through the first eastern gate. Near the entrance to the court of the women, the woman found a Levite and gave him her birds and explained that they were a sin offering for, or a transgression offering for childbirth. She then entered, went upstairs into a gallery and watched what happened to her birds. Her husband, however, went straight through, continuing past the second eastern gate. At some point on his way in, he found his own Levite, who took the lamb, later to be offered in thanks. The man then took the ram to, the, to a priest, this is for his guilt, for what he had done in the money, explained that he had defrauded his neighbor, but had made restitution and paid the penalty and was now bringing his guilt offering. While saying this, he put his hands on the head of the ram, he and the Levite lifted the animal over the parapet. The priest put a basin beneath its throat, and the man held back its head and slit the throat. The animal took the ram away to the priest took the, the ram away to flay, butcher, and cook, and the blood was passed on to be used appropriately at the altar. The man then took the lamb from the Levite and thanked him for his help. Another priest came up with a basin, and they slaughtered the lamb. Again, the same procedure. Meanwhile, the woman's Levite had found a priest to sacrifice the two birds. The man and the woman might watch for a while, at least until the priest who had taken the shared sacrifice, the thank offering, came back approximately 10 minutes later with the results of his work. The man waved the lamb's breast in front of the altar and handed it and the right thigh to the priest. He then left with the rest of the butchered lamb in hand. His wife watched. They know and knew when to come down <coughs> to the eastern gate of the inner wall to meet him. They took the meat back to their campsite and joined their friends. The feast could begin for those who were ritually pure. The infant and the child's toddlers would have been left with a friend or relative, but the other children could come along, the boys going with the husband and the girl with the wife. The w children odd would be silent and obedient, though naturally curious. That's a description of what would be a typical family coming, say, from somewhere in uh, Judea or perhaps the Galilee and what they'd have to go through at the temple. Hmm? This is uh, E.P. Sanders' uh, Judaism Practice and Belief, uh, 63 BCE through 66 CE.
Thank you. And if you have any questions in regard to these things, hmm? I don't know. Any questions? Yes. I've often wondered: Do we have a copy of the of the services at the temple? There is a very uh, minute. There's a quite minute description that's given in the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a collection of rabbinic writings from the first two centuries compiled by uh, Rabbi uh, Rabbi um, Judah Hanazi, the prince. And it uh, has a tractate known as Tamid, which tells how they do it, how the priests cast lots and everything. The actual text of the prayers does not seem to have been fixed. The prayers were somewhat stereotyped, the themes of what they were going to do. Of course, those that were taken from Scripture, we know. The Ten Commandments, the Shema with its three scriptural passages, commanding the use of the, uh, of the uh, phylacteries and of, of the mezuzah. Um, and then uh, there were also, as I said, the, uh, uh, the benedictions. Those were somewhat flexible but they operated within a rather restrained uh, set of words, restrained themes. So as far as a, a literal text, we don't have it. Yes. Two? Two what? Oh, if anybody else has questions, if not. Is it true they would put a, a higher rope around the high priest's ankle when he went in so that if he did? He actually went in three times. He went in to, with, the, with the blood to sprinkle it. Then he came out. He got the, sense, the incense. He went in, offered that, came out, did something else. Then he went back in, got that. And each time he had to change his clothes. Because the, the priestly clothes, garments, it was very strict. Uh, who could have contact and so forth. So, hmm? Yes, he did. He did. The tinkled. Evidently could be heard. That there was such silence in the temple. Knowing how our churches are and everything, and, and how synagogues are, I can't quite see people keeping that silent, especially with all of the animals around. If he died, then you drag him out by the rope. Yeah. Well, do remember what happened to the sons of Levi. Or uh, that, that, no, Aaron was one, but uh, Eli was the other one, Eli. And his sons were uh, struck dead also, in that case, not for offering strange incense, but for really messing up the, um, uh, what people would, they would uh, grab or have their servants grab part of the sacrifice. They would grab it even off the altar itself. And for their blasphemy, not only were they punished, but their father's line, the priests who came from him were to be beggars for the rest of all time. So, um, it was a serious thing, and the priests were well aware that they risked a great deal by whatever they did.